You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Lawyer Liz, and while I am an attorney, the Buzz Off show is not legal advice. Instead, it's a weekly look at all the technology buzz surrounding drones, autonomous vehicles, Internet of Things, and all the gadgets and gizmos in between. Catch us each Wednesday from 2 to 3 in the afternoon on AmericasWebRadio.com or catch the podcast version, Lawyer Liz, on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, your favorite podcast streaming service. So welcome back after a brief holiday hiatus, and we're going to get things started with the November-December stretch with a bit of a bang and going through some busts or musts and picking up some hot topics this week with attorney Fred Jennings talking about bug bounties and vulnerability disclosures, responsible disclosures. So what happens when you invite researchers to take a peek under the hood under the auspice of you're going to improve either the product security for the product or basically the customer experience harden those protections. Well, if you're the researcher, there are some things you should take a look at beforehand. If you're the company, then there's some hard self-assessments looking in the mirror that needs to happen before you announce the program. Fortunately, uh, DJI is one of those companies that the Chinese drone manufacturer is suffering a bit of a hiccup. Not only did they go through the rough patch this summer with the Army, and now it turns out some other agencies may have similarly raised alarms, but they, in response, had announced a bug bounty program in August that unfortunately did not get off to a great start. Researchers found some vulnerabilities and some information that was supposed to be private but wasn't being stored. So, and because of how the program or perhaps the rush to get the program out the door, certain basic protections weren't in place. Well, end result is a very public flare-up with one of the researchers that had been previously announced as the top bug bounty prize winner to the tune of, or recipient to the tune of $30,000. Well, they then declared him a hacker and said, nope, maybe he wasn't participating in the program. So as all of that uh, very public or battle unfolds publicly, it seemed a timely time to discuss the topic with Fred. So we'll get to Fred's discussion in the next uh, section of the show. But first, going into some busts or musts, and really when you come back after Cyber Monday and Black Friday holiday weekend shopping, there were some definite winners 
during the holiday shopping weekend, including eBay having its Cyber Monday being its biggest sales day ever to date, and Amazon not too far behind the 2017 Black Friday weekend was the best yet, uh, according to estimates for Amazon devices sold. The Echo Dot and Amazon Fire TV Stick with Alexa Voice Remote were not only the best-selling Amazon devices, but they were the best-selling products across all manufacturers and categories. So kudos to Amazon. We've highlighted on prior shows some of the privacy and security and other concerns with those devices, but obviously consumers have an interest. Perhaps it was the prices. Perhaps it's the convenience over security, but in any event, Amazon by its own numbers having a banner weekend. Additionally, while Apple hasn't released any information, one of the analysts has predicted that Apple may have sold six million iPhone X or iPhone tins over the Black Friday weekend. I'd say however you want to call it, that are those are some pretty good numbers for Apple. Suffering on the bus side is Uber. After taking some hits for their uh, various treatment of drivers, of women employees within the company, well, it just gets better because they disclose 57 million passengers and drivers. Uh, information may have been caught up in a breach uh, worldwide. And while Uber has been tight-lipped about uh, what what was accessed, how they got it, but they have disclosed that they paid, I believe it was 100000 to the hackers to return the information. Well, they're about to start spending a lot more money in legal fees because between various different countries whose citizens' uh, data has been impacted. You also have states and cities getting into the lawsuit frenzy, and really it's just beginning. So a quick reminder to folks that as you start doing internet or taking your business, even just multi-state across the U.S., but if you take it across the world, you're going to have to be willing and ready to deal with data breach, data privacy, and other consumer protections across the board. So hopefully Uber will have a plan in place and get going. If not, there are going to be some very happy attorneys collecting fantastic bonuses next year. But in when it comes to these international companies, international business, DJI and others are also facing questions of if consumer data, when you've got DJI aircraft being flown all over the world, what happens when those pilots, those operators' data they thought was secured and potentially included uh, personal information? Uh, 
PII or other protected information, well, when you have a breach, you just have to start looking at what was accessed, how it was accessed, and whether you need to start doing some disclosures. So unfortunately, that's going to be a quick lesson as well for DJI and its counsel. Another bitter pill to swallow is on the medical side, the FDA, FDA Food and Drug Administration, approved its first ever, call it cyber pill. It's an edible sensor that discloses when it's been ingested. It monitors patients with schizophrenia. So when you've told the doctor, well, I promise I took the pill the same time every day. I did not miss a single dose. Well, your pill's going to rat you out. Problem is, what else is it going to rat out? And who all is it going to share this information with? And does everybody need to know that? So while perhaps making it easier for patients who are prone to forgetting or when ensuring timely and consistent pill you know, medication doses is key, well, what's going to happen with this? So as the FDA moves into the connected world, keep an eye. Whether it's a bust or a must, not quite sure. One thing that was definitely a bust is a drone operator in Northern California found himself on the wrong side of the law because, well, quite frankly, it sounds like he forgot, ignored, didn't care. But he used his drone to drop uh, political leaflets over two NFL games in Northern California. Unfortunately for him, flying and operating in a drone aircraft over near football stadiums an hour before the game through until an hour after the game is very much prohibited and facing multiple misdemeanor charges. This poor gentleman in Northern California is learning a lesson, but it also raises security concerns. What happens for these stadiums? How do you mitigate this threat? Another threat that is expensive and perhaps need a mitigation or who knows, it'll quickly be replaced by the next hot game. But until then, uh, researchers estimated that Pokemon Go and driving is not only a bad idea, but is potentially causing billions in damages. The researchers looked at a 148-day period uh, back when the game first came out, so over 2015 to 2016, and in that study, in those 148 days, they looked at a county accidents in a county in Indiana, and based on that, they estimated Pokemon Go was responsible for between 5.2 million and 25.5 million dollars in damages. Again, that was right at after it was introduced, Pokemon Go had yet to enact some of its current restrictions. We're using different uh, sensors within the or mobile devices. It can tell when a car is in motion uh, and doesn't permit 
the same level of play. But either way, you take those numbers, extrapolate them out across the country, and you're talking about 2 to 7.3 billion dollars of potential damages. So, not exactly Pokemon Go becomes a Pokemon don't when driving. But not only Pokemon Go, getting back to and after this break we will jump in to the drones uh or the issue started with drones, but talking about the bug bounties and vulnerability disclosure programs, the risks, liabilities, and considerations. But with Fred Jennings, but until then, you're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio, and we'll be right back. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. Field books. There is a difference, and the difference is made in the USA by family-owned and operated Bogside Publishing in New Hampshire. For over 38 years... The family business has produced the finest, most durable, rain-resistant, and most affordable field books in the land surveying and engineering industry. Demand the best from your supplier, Bogside Publishing Field Books. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And welcome back to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. And as I mentioned before the break, we are we are joined by a legal eagle and one who knows a thing or two about technology, having both tinkered and, as his bio will tell you, he's both a lit- litigator and a hacker with Tor Eklund. And based out of New York, he has represented... Everything from the criminal and civil side to the CFA cases, uh, copyright, trademark matters, security, privacy, and everything in between. But welcome to the show, Fred Jennings, and better known on Twitter as at Esquiring. So, Fred, glad you could find some Thanks time for to join me us. Here. It's great, great to be here speaking with you. Well, it is, as I had teased a little bit uh, before you join the show that we seem to find like bug bounties are the latest it trend where companies say come in tell us like try to try to break our programs or software or hardware you know, tell us what we're doing wrong and we will pay you money for it or we'll somehow otherwise reward you so that sounds great but it seems there may be some other motives going on with that. There's some hidden traps and hoping you can help us kind of decipher a little bit about what's behind this trend and what are some of the pitfalls from a researcher and consumer side. I mean, I'll do my best. It, like, like you say, it's still an emerging trend. So the, the details, exactly what each group is doing is, you know, there's not really a standard norm yet. I mean, I, I think... In the first place, the security community has been talking bug bounties for years. You've got some prominent companies sort of administering them. And it... I'll say even the 
Pentagon. I, I, uh, I was last about to year. say, right. Yes. Wildly- Pentagon, I, th- I think it was the Air Force as well, had a related or offshoot program. I remember seeing several like from organizations that five years ago never would have even considered this. Well, and I know there was some hesitancy at first when researchers hear the Pentagon saying, yes, come, break, you know, break these programs, kind of going, this is a trap. It's a trap. But it seemed to have been a very successful program, or at least well-received from both ends. It seemed like it was. I I haven't, I I didn't look too deeply into the details of it, of it, or of their, you know, scope or contracts, but that was the sense I got from people I know who were involved. And so one of the other, uh, one of the other things too that plays into this is when you're doing some of this research, sometimes you stumble upon it and, or stumble upon a vulnerability or a, an issue, but other times it's more of a, hey, I, all right, if you're going to let me poke around under the hood of your car, sure, I may find something because of the program. How are those two instances perhaps different? What should people be on the lookout for as a researcher when you've got those types of programs? I mean, I think with any bug bounty program, the tricky question is about what the scope is. When when we're talking about potential risks to a researcher, I think that's the question that is sort of foremost in, in one's mind is, you know, what are the boundaries of where I'm allowed to go? What kinds of poking around I'm allowed to do? Um, most, um, whether it's a bug bounty or a capture the flag type tournament or, you know, most types of, um, security engagement will have some sort of meaningful or useful scope to them. And that, uh, I think that's the number one question from a, what are my potential risks here sort of perspective. Well, and when, from a consumer side, of course, there's benefits of, People are being able to test what's going on. You find out where where the risks are with some of your uh, devices, hardware, you know, your TV. Is it doing this? Or it, there's the benefit there. But if a researcher brings a vulnerability to a company, it, that doesn't mean they have to fix no, it. No, and, it? and you know that's that's why a lot of um, security, security disclosure programs will put into their contract a sort of certain time frame for disclosure if it's not fixed. The, the theory is you've now created some leverage to encourage the company to fix the problem. Um, well, and part of that, too, is it, if you have disclosed it, is there the expectation of, well, now the company knows they can't... Uh, I'd say hide behind, but you said, well, we didn't know this was a problem. No, no, no. You had a, you had a bug bounty program. You had a disclosure and we, we told you about it. Right. Well, and I think, you know, from a, it it has, I've yet to see it applied, but I think from a product's liability standpoint as well, that has some interesting, interesting implications. If it's the company's own bug bounty program, I don't know that they could then after having that report, go back and say, oh, we didn't know about that, or we shouldn't, had no reason to know about that. Well, there's a, there's a, it seems there's a good distinction between a responsible, you know, disclosure program and a bug bounty. Can you perhaps explain a little bit from the legal side what those differences may be, or 
is are they truly one um, and the same? They certainly have some similarities. I don't think they're usually the same. And and again, it's going to differ a bit whether this is an internal company responsible disclosure policy or bug bounty or a third party bug bounty or responsible disclosure policy. I think the common ground they share and the the space that's kind of of most interest both to the end user and to the company itself is how that disclosure is done. Um, most responsible disclosure programs will have, you know, sort of a set of rules around when they publicize what it is at all and sort of leave the abstract up um, when it is disclosed to the company and what sort of the timing looks like for how long the company has to fix it before details are publicly disclosed. Um, bug bounties don't always have that. Um, I know that some of the third party, I, I, I have the impression that some of the third party ones will work that into their program or will partner with a, say, CERT or some other group that does uh, vulnerability, vulnerability disclosures. Um, but typically bug bounties are, will give you a reward if you, if you've discovered this, um, the disclosure programs. Okay, and that seems that's to be the biggest. The biggest yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Is it a vulnerability disclosure or responsible disclosures? You found an issue. You want to go public with it, you know, because you want credit for the research. You want credit for being obviously so brilliant. You have found this, you know, you want to have the uh, vulnerability with its own hashtag and uh, Twitter account website and right, logo. Right, exactly. But at the same, and but at the same time, you don't want other people perhaps to know if you're using the devices. I mean, I know a lot of people. The reason they found the vulnerability is because it's a device they're using uh, until it gets patched, but. With the vulnerabilities, you're not necessarily getting right. paid. Your reward, if anything, is sort of that credibility or notoriety of having your name attached to the official vulnerability report, which, yes, it's 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 compensation and it's important, but you can't take it to the bank in the same way as a bug bounty. to you. <laughs> well, and too, you may have discovered something for a client in a different setting, and so the client has already paid you for perhaps right. part of it, but when you when you get to the when we get to the bug bounties, those are really people opening up their doors and saying, "We're going to let you look under the hood within certain parameters." Right. I mean, it, it's almost like so, you've you sort of created an open contract for security testing within a certain scope. And I find it interesting with that the bug bounty may not perhaps pay as much. Uh, for what a researcher may have been able to and previously, if someone found a vulnerability or an issue, maybe they would disclose it, maybe they wouldn't, maybe they would tell their customers about it. And so if their customers knew about it and could defend against it, that was what made you better than a competitor. How is that kind of side of things, the the market, uh, I say, advantage, changing because of bug bounties? Well, I, I think that question's come up a lot in, in discussions around the correct pricing for bug bounties because, you know, not only are you competing with the sort of harder to uh, quantify credibility reward of a public disclosure, but you're also competing, like you're saying, with both private markets and 
um, sort of black market vulnerability uh, sellers where, again, it's quantifiable, but it's not necessarily... It's hard to have a immediate view of what the values you're betting against with your bug bounty program. So there's certainly a lot, a lot of talk about how much is this worth? How do we, you know, how do we value a certain bug, um, bug bounty disclosure? And, you know, if you're doing tiered values, obviously that gets a lot more complicated. Well, yeah. And then the other, so one of the issues both is what, what environment are you allowed to test in? What, you know, just how far are you being permitted down the rabbit holes and what, whether you're going to be paid, whether it's market value or an arbitrary set preset amount, but then also what you can do with that information afterwards seems to be one of the big restrictions of, do you get the glory and the credit or do you have to then go silent? Right. And that's a big difference. Um, especially with a lot of the private or company internal, bug bounty programs is sure you're getting cash in hand, but the details of what you're allowed to disclose to others, what you're allowed to say, what you're allowed to publicize about that, you know, it's, it's a tough question about whether that is worth it. If there are serious restrictions on your ability to speak about it afterwards. Well, that's one of the things I think we'll go into, I think, that uh, for the listeners, that's one of the things we'll start going into later in the show is really delving into some of these issues of what are the risks by the researcher with conducting some of this research and disclosing it, and what are you giving up, what have you gained, and in the context of these other laws, but also from a consumer standpoint, what what are we gaining? And because just because you're researching doesn't always put different because it, it would seem those are two very different viewpoints. Absolutely. And and I think you've got some good examples of this in relatively recent history with uh, security disclosures. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, last year, there were some headlines around the fairly public uh, display of one of the, one of the vulnerabilities in um, some network system in Jeep cars that had been live tested on the road somewhere. Um, and it did create some, I, I think, reasonable debate over, bit of panic. you know, was this ethical to do? Should people be doing this kind of stunt hacking? And if I'm remembering right, I think part of the backstory was that they had gone to the company about this already. They had said, hey, you've got to fix this and received no response. And so part of their sort of ethical calculus was, you know, we, we think we can do this in a controlled fashion. And if we do this in a way that makes the front page of the news, that's a lot more pressure on the company to do something to fix this serious vulnerability. Well, exactly. It, it's harder to sweep it under the rug and keep it quiet. But at the same time, as, as you know, there, the environment in which it's disclosed and would a bug bounty have addressed some of that? Or was it still have fallen under the, you know, vulnerable or the responsible disclosures but we'll pick all of that up great tease before the next uh, segment on buzz off with lawyer liz field books there is a difference and the difference is made in the usa by family owned and operated bogside publishing in new hampshire for over 38 years the family business has produced the finest most durable 
rain-resistant, and most affordable field books in the land surveying and engineering industry. Demand the best from your supplier, Bogside Publishing Field Books. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. It's that time of year again. If you suffer from itchy eyes, sneezing, a constant runny nose, sinus headaches, or an increase in asthma symptoms, and you're tired of using allergy medicine, maybe it's time to stop putting a Band-Aid on the problem. Peachtree ENT Center believes in treating the problem instead of masking the symptom. We are pleased to offer an innovative alternative that can free you from this routine. Sublingual immunotherapy is a safe, easy, and effective way to treat allergies to food and environmental allergens for you and your family. Imagine placing drops under your tongue to treat allergies. No shots, no office visits with time off from work, and freedom from needing daily allergy medication. Just think, next year, you can actually enjoy being outdoors. About an hour of your time is all it takes to change the quality of your life. Remember, Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. Chatting today with attorney Fred Jennings on really what happens when you're doing the research with these bug bounty programs and responsible uh, disclosure programs. So right before the break, we were talking about some of the issues as a researcher that you've identified an issue, you've started poking around in it, and now that you've worried about whether you've breached the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, where whether you've breached the DMCA, or if you have found your way into a one of the exemptions and safe harbor protections, but Fred, our analysis doesn't really stop there, does it? Not really, no. There's quite a bit more to, to consider when you're talking about this kind of research. And so one of the things that comes out of either a responsible uh, disclosure program or, uh, but more importantly or more so with the bug bounties is, in those cases, companies have really invited people into their environment and said, tell us, tell us what you found. So you have some expectation of access, but in exchange for whatever this bug bounty, you know, whatever they're paying, they're going to look for, well, they're going to want you to sign a non-disclosure agreement or some other assurances that uh, you're not going to disclose any certain information, et cetera. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, it's it's one of those contract analysis questions that is, pretty common with any sort of contracting agreement, even outside of the security industry, is what are you going to be prohibited from saying down the road? And I think it's asking the person signing up for these sort of programs to make what I think is a very difficult determination, uh, which is giving up their right to speak about certain things they've discovered. But what do they get in exchange? I mean, obviously, if there's money then that's a whole other assessment or evaluation review of, is the money worth what I'm going to give up? But more so, 
one of the things I have in the past, you know, encouraged people to look at is what protections are you getting in exchange? Uh, are they releasing you from potential harm? What are some of the things that you advise your clients to evaluate? Right. I mean, when looking at any sort of these agreements, I, I think one of the first questions is, well, I think the first two questions are, what's the scope of the bug bounty program? That is, you know, what parts of the, of the hood am I allowed to look under and what types of, you know, what wrenches can I use? What can I tinker at? Um, and the second question is, uh, is the, are the terms of the program clear on what happens if I accidentally go beyond that scope? Um, you know, obviously the company doesn't, doesn't want people going beyond the scope, but does that all of a sudden invalidate the protections you're getting by being part of this program? Or is the company agreeing to, you know, sort of as long as it's accidental, not uh, to leave the protections in place as long as this is an accidental overreach? Uh, I think it's fairly common when you're doing security research to realize that, oh, you've seen this one thread and you follow it and end up someplace that maybe you realize only later is well outside the scope of what you're supposed to be looking at. Well, and two, it really, in exchange for the protections, one, it kind of, what you would imagine, or I imagine what you would look for is, hey, am I good? You know, are, are they going to wave as long as I have disclosed everything I did or the path I took, as you said, the wrenches I used and the tests I ran and as long as this is what I did, if I followed this agreement, I'm good. You're not going to come back and sue me. But what happens if they used information that they gained elsewhere or that perhaps information or knowledge that impacts other projects they're working on? Right. Um, so I, I, see that, I see this a lot in a software employment contract context as well is... Um, almost like a IP assignment clauses that tend to reach well beyond the work product that the company is specifically looking for. Um, and I think, you know, whether it's an NDA or an employment contract or a bug bounty program, the, the question is what's the limit of what you are no longer able to use in your own work, in your own research. Um, one thing that's a little, that eases that a bit, I think, in the bug bounty context is not all of them, by their terms, are claiming ownership of the submission. Um, they're claiming license, like sort of a license and use right to it, so that they can do their analysis and use your work internally to do whatever security updates they may they may need to. Um, but they are not at least some of them. I know I know Microsoft's bounty program doesn't. Um, they're not claiming ownership of the submission itself. So so you would retain certain rights subject to those. NDAs to use it later in your own projects or to sort of take the lessons learned from that into some other bug bounty. Well, and, and one of the things that really is concerning too is from a consumer, if somebody has discovered a vulnerability, disclosed it, so the company now knows about it, they don't get to hide behind that, but if they're not for if they don't fix it and they've now tied the hands of the researcher as a consumer i'm left with a product that still has an issue and now is known 
but my product still has an issue. Right, exactly. And you know, I think if the if the sort of gag rule on the bug bounty program is indefinite, that's a serious problem because sure, the researchers gotten paid. Maybe they've gotten you know listed on a bug bounty role or on a role or something that the company does to say, hey, these people found a bunch of bugs, good for them. But if the company doesn't fix the problem and there's no time limit to when this person can speak out publicly if it's not fixed, you know, they've it, it, they've taken a program that is intended to find and fix vulnerabilities and made it one that allows those vulnerabilities to be prolonged. Well, and exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't protect, it doesn't add to consumer protection side of things. It doesn't make our products better, but are they being, I mean, I could almost see where the NDAs are used as a weapon against the researchers and, bind their hands. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think that's a major problem. It sort of undermines one of the one of the main purposes of these programs in the first place. What? You mean these companies are not offering them out the goodness of their own heart? <clears throat> I, I know. Maybe may surprising. Um, but I, I think it's one of the major debate points on whether a bug bounty or a responsible disclosure program is sort of the better one for the end consumer. Well, and again, too, I think it it really goes back to from a consumer side, I want to know that my information or my product, my everything, that I'm getting the most or I'm benefiting from improved products, improved service. You know, the claim that you've heard in the research community for years is that I, they disclosed something and nope, nothing was done. Right. That it sat dormant for you. I mean, that's in fact, it led to what several of the high profile breaches and, you know, uh, malware and different botnets that have attacked us. Well, we told you about this years ago. You didn't do anything. How do you see, if not through bug bounties, how do you see that changing? How do we fix that? I think it's a really hard. I think it's a really hard problem to fix uh, because you you have a, a major policy question that that is how much of this risk do you want to place on the company? And so far, the law has been fairly reticent to apply sort of product liability standards to software vulnerabilities, and and I think in some ways for good reason. It's it's a major economic shift on the risks a company has to consider. It sort of changes the overall cost of being a company in this industry at all. And you know, on one hand, you don't want to stifle innovation. You don't want to discourage business. On the other hand, you want people to be safe and you want critical problems, especially when they can affect, you know, when we're talking about medical devices and things that can affect one's physical safety in a very tangible way. You also don't want to fail to punish people if they've ignored, especially if they've consciously ignored serious problems with the products they're putting out there. So, and if I'm a researcher and I've taken the risk, uh, perhaps I had access or I had authorization, perhaps I didn't, but I've discovered a critical vulnerability. Uh, what What is to say I shouldn't just sell it again, kind of going back to that, earlier example where I protect my clients against it 
or my consume, you know, my customers, but I don't basically I I sell or I otherwise profit from it and I don't make it public. Is there is there legally something wrong with that or considerations people should take into, you know, add to the mix? I mean, I, I think one of the difficult things, if, if you're sort of proceeding under, in that hypothetical without a without something like a bug bounty or a sort of company-acknowledged responsible disclosure program, um, one of the issues is that with the current status of the law that we have, the the risks of the the practical risks of public disclosure are quite a bit higher than keeping it <clears throat> keeping it in house like that. Absolutely. Well, it's certainly something that, uh, thank you for your work basically extending uh, what you've done to help extend some of those DMCA exemptions and making sure those are in place. Because, you know, with the voting machines, with the cars and the right to repair, a lot of those are dependent on these exemptions and remaining in place. Again, just as one part of the puzzle, but where how can people get involved or where can people find out more information on the work that you've been doing um on, on work that i've been doing personally um the firm's what and with and with the yeah, firm. I, well, I was gonna say no I, I think the the firm runs a fairly up-to-date sort of uh news feed on what we're on what we're working on and sort of major events and cases that we're handling um you know tor and myself are both fairly active on twitter and that's a pretty good place to keep up with our uh, various ramblings on, on these topics. Uh, and then I, I would... And what's the firm's website? Oh, it's toreckland.com is the firm website. And then you're at Esquiring on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some other good resources to find uh, information about your work and the firm's work? Um, I mean, those are the main ones. Uh, we've, we keep a pretty uh, up-to-date press blog on the firm website as well. Those are good places to look. Um, Yeah, those are the main ones. Excellent. Well, it's certainly something to watch. I mean, where do you see kind of a shift coming or some kind of keep an eye on this? This is going to be the next big issue. Well, I, I think you spotted a very good one with the rise of these bug bounty programs. You know, it's on one hand delightful seeing places as sort of high profile as we were saying before, the Pentagon embracing this model of security testing and sort of opening their doors to researchers in a way that I, I don't think has ever really happened officially before. On the other hand, I think time will tell whether the ways that the details of the ways they're being implemented actually sort of serve to make the general public net safer. I think, I think that's the big question. Um, in my Absolutely. in my pie in the high, in, in sort of my pie in the sky hopes, I would love to see the CFAA change in a way that makes this a more predictable analysis for a researcher starting out down the path of checking out a security question. Uh, because look, when, when you make we'll, things, I was gonna say, we'll, yeah. we'll we'll add that to your your Christmas wish list, and we'll have to check back in and see. But thank you both to Fred. To America's Web Radio, catch us next time on Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz.
Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Bogside Publishing. For over 38 years, this family-owned New Hampshire business has manufactured the most durable, rain-resistant, and most affordable made-in-the-USA field books for the land surveying and engineering industry. And Bogside Publishing is still doing it today. Demand Bogside Field Books from your supplier or go to bogsidepublishing.com for a list of exclusive Bogside dealers. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national... Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. Catch us each Wednesday from 2 to 3 Eastern on AmericasWebRadio.com or find the Lawyer Liz podcast available on America's Web Radio's website as well as iTunes or any of your favorite podcast streaming services. Talking today with Fred Jennings. And Fred is an attorney and both a researcher himself who has a little bit of knowledge, I'd, I'd like to say, and I'm using that in quotes because, quite frankly, he has been single-handedly working on just about every issue we could think of when it comes to these uh, both criminal and civil side of, we'll call it uh ethical hacking, but the vulnerability disclosures and bug bounties. And so before the break, Fred, you were giving us a great, great example of what some said or phrased as stunt hacking, but what happens when you don't get any response from a disclosure? And is that fixed by bug bounties? Right. Well, I I think... One of the, I think one of the big reasons why the information security community was pushing for bug bounties to be more widely adopted um, was because there's sort of this economic theory that if we put a tangible cost on 
submitting these things and make the company pay out when these things are discovered, they've got more incentive to avoid in the first place. But that sounds nice on paper. The reality is that, look, the devil's in the details on these things. And if this is a private bug bounty program that is set at a price that isn't too burdensome for the company, which most of them aren't, that probably shouldn't be because it's about their security budget. Um, you know, the thing is that if this is the company's product and they've put a sort of NDA or a similar sort of gag order type rule into the terms of participating in their program, this could very easily be a way for the company to be aware of its vulnerabilities, but not act on them and not risk the publicity of public disclosure. Well, and two, it's, you both have the, the risk that the companies are facing, but also from the researchers, it's one thing if you have gained access to someone's systems, let's say for the purposes of research, not maliciously, just, you know, you use the product yourself or another company may have hired you and said, tell us everything that's right or everything that's wrong with a competitor's product. But what you conduct in research isn't always looked upon well by the company whose vulnerabilities you've discovered. I mean, what are some of the traps or not traps, but some of the concerns on that side of things? Um, I mean, you've got the, have you accessed, you know, what sort of things does it trigger from the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, the, you know, DMCA, you've got all these protections for systems or access to software, et cetera, but should they be there if really you're conducting research for the benefit of bettering the product or bettering public right. safety? Right, and then I think the the, prince, the sort of policy and ethical question there is is a tough one, and it's one that neither the DMCA nor the CFAA particularly take into account in the way that the law is is phrased or often in the way it's applied. Um, they do have very different frameworks for how they pose a risk to the security researcher in this kind of kind of position. So it probably makes sense to, to talk about them a little bit separately. Um, especially. So oh, absolutely. you want to talk CFA first? You know, All right. why not? Um, so that's what, the, the CFA ramifications are going to be a lot more tangible. If this is, if it's, if it's something that the researcher doesn't own, or even if it is something the researcher owns, if it's say a device that talks to a server somewhere else that they are not authorized to, to access or to look at. Um, so what is the CFA, just in case somebody hasn't seen the movie War Games and has not heard the joke from that, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, what is it? So it was conceived in the mid-1980s as an anti-hacking law. And, you know, obviously this was before the public internet. Uh, you mentioned War Games, and in fact, in the congressional history, that was one of the sort of inspirations for the law. But broadly speaking, it criminalizes unauthorized access or unauthorized damage to a protected computer. And so basically, if I'm researching and trying to, you know, looking at a system or a a device and I inadvertently or perhaps intentionally 
access a different server or a different computer, have I then triggered the CFA? That is a wonderful and almost impossible question to answer in the abstract. Um, <laughs> part of the problem is that authorization is not well-defined within the CFA, and different states, different uh, appellate circuits have gone very different ways with how they apply, what that means, what authorization looks like, what exceeding authorization looks like, and really the, the, the short and simple bit, uh, fact of it is the law's a mess on, on the issue. So on the other hand, you mentioned whether they do this intentionally or inadvertently, there is an intentionality factor in the CFAA. So at least in theory, this shouldn't be applied to accidental uh, action. That said, uh, it has been over and over again. And in fact, one of the earliest applica- well-known applications of the CFAA was about the Morris worm, which was a completely unintentional sort of early virus. So it is certainly it certainly poses a serious threat to researchers poking around on other people's servers, even in cases where those are public, publicly accessible. There are certain places where, like, the terms of service violations are still looked at as potentially a CFAA authorization uh, determining factor. So, and really, when you're researching some of these vulnerabilities, some of these issues, and different products, you are probably violating their quote-unquote terms of service that, or their end-user license, like, You've probably broken one of their... We've probably broken one of their terms if you're doing something with this technology you're not supposed to be or researching to see where where its flaws may lie. And the tricky part is, unless you know exactly what potential jurisdictions you're subject to, and even then it's a little fuzzy, it's almost impossible to know ahead of time whether there is potential CFA liability for those actions. So, really, you're taking a significant risk, well, depending on whether you're doing this for work, for fun, and basically the anger you may elicit, it sounds like, from the company whose uh, systems, software that you're poking, I say fun at, but poking around. And and I think bug bounties were one way that were conceived of as a way to hopefully minimize or avoid that type of risk by laying out terms by which researchers can poke around under the hood without fear of litigation or possible criminal prosecution, Uh, you encourage that research that otherwise carries a significant risk to it. Well, and so now that you've, you know, balanced the project or the information you're looking for and you've, you've realized, okay, I may do this, I may breach you know, I may have an issue with the CFAA. That's only one piece of the puzzle. You've still got to worry about the D- Digital Millennium Copyright right. Act, and right? Specifically, it's uh, DMCA Section 1201, which, uh, among other things that the DMCA does, uh, this is one that probably poses the greatest risk to a security researcher, even if they're not working with any sort of network device, but just hacking on you know, some device that they themselves own. Uh, the way the DMCA puts this framework together is you are not supposed to 
um, violate or compromise any technical protection measure the machine uses. And that term is not terribly well-defined and pretty broadly understood. But in, in practice, what it means is if you've got, say, a smart TV or a medical device or a vehicle computer that you want to perform research on, if that company, say, encrypted the firmware or um, used some sort of password authorization system before you can gain access to the operating system itself or gain root access to the device, the, the computer running the device, those would probably be considered technical protection measures under the DMCA. And under Section 1201, unless there's an exemption, it would be at least potentially a crime to violate those those measures. In practice, we don't see this applied much, thankfully. Um, I think I think in part because it is so broadly worded that you could rope in any number of fairly innocent practices into this. Um, and you've also got a uh, what's called the triennial rulemaking process where the Copyright Office considers exemptions to this otherwise fairly I'll onerous say, restriction. Well, and congratulations, uh, because uh, recently announced the, I guess, broad rate, the list of exemptions as that's been one area you've been working on in particular, but y'all have made some headway. We made some great headway. Um, I I was, I had the pleasure of of, uh, working with another attorney, Aaron Williamson, um, on behalf of Software Freedom Conservancy back uh, in the last triennial rulemaking. So that was the uh, the 2015 rulemaking, which means we began in 2014 and there was a great deal of papers exchanged, but we, we were um, in particular seeking an, an exemption for smart. Wait, lawyers and the government working on something, and you're saying there were a lot of papers I, I know, it may exchanged. be surprising. Oh, um, shocking. Not only lawyers in the government, but uh, lawyers on the other side for people like the RIAA and the MPAA. So, yeah, quite a bit of paperwork, um, but uh, we were successful in obtaining an exemption for smart TV uh, jailbreaking. Um, they also issued a number of other important exemptions during that round, including one for security research and others for medical devices and, 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 and quite a number of things that really we have needed exemptions to for a long time. Well, one of the big things that came out this summer was the voting machine right. uh, vulnerabilities. And so y'all have protected that exemption once yep. again. Um, and right. So the other thing that has happened with this rulemaking process is um, from the first round, I think the Copyright Office realized that this was a fairly burdensome procedure for everyone involved, the office and both sides, proponents and opponents of exemptions. And each time they've tried to tweak the rules a bit to make it a bit less burdensome, to make it a bit more efficient. One major change they made to this most recent one was they said in their initial sort of call for proposals that if you were seeking a renewal, unless there was some really new or previously undiscussed use of this device that called for serious uh, debate over whether it should still be exempted that they would just be renewing the exemptions unless they got a compelling reason not to. 
So fantastic. So congratulations on getting that. And those are just some of the issues for researchers when it comes to bug bounties. But we'll delve a little bit more into what happens when, you know, from the consumer side and response side. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.